Well, here we are in Ephesians chapter 3, and the theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And Paul, he closed out chapter 2 as he's been going through blessing after blessing. He's explaining the riches we have in Christ. And as he's been going through these, he closes out chapter 2 by explaining the blessing that Jesus is our peace. That every believer is part of God's family and therefore has a necessary and important role in expanding God's kingdom on earth. And when we get to chapter 3 now, Paul is going to begin explaining his role in expanding God's kingdom on earth. And so by learning about the importance of Paul's role in the family of God, we will learn some principles that help us navigate the blessing of our role in God's family as well. So chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So, Paul starts off here and he says, for this cause, uh, that goes back to the things at the end of chapter 2. Because Jesus is our peace, both with one another and with our Father, uh, because of that, Paul wants to say something. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then he doesn't say it. What he wants to do, we'll learn in a moment, but he actually interrupts himself when he gets to this phrase, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now, you know, we can understand someone else interrupting us. We usually don't interrupt ourselves, but Paul does it frequently in the Scripture. And so as he's writing here and he says, hey, in light of everything I just taught you in chapter 2, I want to share something with you. But he, he says, you know, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now, remember, Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians under house arrest in Rome. Uh, he is free to move about his home during the day, but he is chained to a Roman soldier at night so he cannot escape. And yet, Paul does not describe himself as a prisoner of Rome or of a soldier. He describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Literally, I'm a prisoner of the Messiah, Jesus Paul did not consider himself chained to anyone other than Jesus. He wasn't under house arrest by chance in his mind. He believed that he was there because that's where Jesus put him. And therefore, Jesus was working in and through Paul's life in there under house arrest, even though we might conclude that Paul could do more for the Lord if he wasn't a prisoner. Now, how different might my attitude and your attitude be if we looked at our circumstances that way. You know, John Doe just got fired for Jesus Christ. By Je no, not for, but by Jesus Christ. Seriously, how might that change how you approach that situation? Changes everything. Now, in particular, why was Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ? He says, well, for you Gentiles, it's your fault. <laughs> Ministry to the Gentiles is what got Paul in trouble in Jerusalem. We read back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, Paul had been warned not to go to Je Jerusalem because trouble awaited him there, chains awaited him there. God had warned him multiple times, but Paul, like many of us, is a stubborn dude. And so he said, but you don't understand, you know, I, I know the Lord's telling me not to go there, but I've got a purpose in mind. I'm going anyway. I'm going to go and share the gospel with my people because if anybody understands why they don't believe, it's me. 
I know all their excuses. I know all the the hangups they have. I can reason with them. I can explain it. Paul always had this in his mind. He's like, my people, I can relate to them. I can somehow, and the Lord be like, no, Paul, you're going to the Gentiles. And he would always try and it would always fail. And so he goes, and in Acts 21, 27, it says when the Paul had been taking part in a a purifying ritual. He had sponsored some guys there for their Nazarite vow. And and so verse 27 in Acts 21 says, and when the seven days were almost ended for this uh, purification ritual and ceremony, it says the Jews which were from Asia, they were all there for one of the holy feasts. The Jews that were in Asia, so these are the ones area Paul had been ministering to the Gentiles in. It says, when they saw him, Paul, in the temple, they stirred up all the people and they laid hands on him, and it was not for prayer. And they were crying out, men of Israel, help us. We, we need help. This is, a, this, is a, this is a criminal. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people of Israel, against the law, and against this place, the temple. He, he preaches against the temple, against the people of Israel, and against God's law. And further, he has brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. For, why did they say that? They had seen, before Paul got to the temple, they saw with him in the city Trophimus, who was a Gentile, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And so when they're saying, this guy's brought Gentiles into the temple, it's desecrated the temple, and so all the city was moved. You think you got it bad? I've never had the whole city of Orlando mad at me, have you? I haven't even had Sanford mad at me. We get mad about a lot of stuff over there. The whole city was angry with him, and the people ran together, and they took Paul, and they drew him, they dragged him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. This place has been desecrated because this man's been in there. Shut the doors. And as they went about to kill him, I mean, it was looking grim for Paul. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, a riot. The Antonia Fortress, where he and his soldiers were stationed, could see right down into the Temple Mount. They would see the riot happening. And so he immediately took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain, the the people beating Saul, saw the chief captain, the soldiers were going to kill him. They saw the soldiers, they stopped. They stopped beating Paul up. Now, We see this sentence, and you would think that the next thing that Paul would say is, I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles, and for this cause, for this cause what? What do you want to share with us, Paul? But then it doesn't make sense after that, if you heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you. I mean, it's almost like he doesn't finish his sentence, and it's because he doesn't. If it seems like what Paul says next doesn't make a lot of sense, it's because Paul originally intended to say, listen, because Jesus is our peace, and has created this new entity called the church where both Jew and Gentile have equal aspects to the Father, I want to share another prayer with you that I normally pray for you guys. We find where he finishes his thought in verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he shares his prayer. But he doesn't now <laughs> because Paul interrupts this plan of sharing his prayer because he senses a need to explain his unique ministry to the Gentiles that landed him in trouble. Why does he feel the need to do that? Because he doesn't want his imprisonment to discourage them. Why is that necessary? It's important to share because it can be jarring when we hear of a faithful believer who's going through what seems to be unfair troubles. It can be jarring for us. 
You hear the news that someone's going through suffering or persecution or trouble, and you're like, why them, Lord? Like, they love you. They follow you. Why would you allow them to go through that? Why would you bring this into their life? It could be jarring. In fact, I would say that that reason is the most common reason I have seen people leave the faith. I have friends of mine who I serve the Lord with, I fellowship with, who no longer walk with Him for this reason. They saw someone else who they knew loved Jesus and had been obedient to Jesus go through suffering or pain. They know someone who loves and obeys the Lord, experienced tragedy or pain or both, and they conclude that if this is how God rewards those who are faithful to Him, then either God must not exist or God is not worthy of following. Now, I don't want to stray too far from our text this morning because we want to keep moving, but I do think it's important to address this. If you're expecting God's will for your life to always be in line with what you think your obedience or your faithfulness to God deserves, you are going to be a disappointed, doubting, or disgusted Christian. And you will begin to conclude that you are more righteous than God and make better decisions than God. We sang a song this morning, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Right? We sing it loud. You guys are loud. It's one thing to sing it. It's another thing to have that be that starting point for everything that comes into our life. You see, this mindset that somehow expects God's will for my life to always be in line with what I think my obedience or faithfulness deserves, that mindset ignores that Jesus has already rescued us from all of our sin. It ignores that if Jesus did nothing else for me, I, I, I should be so grateful. And that mindset forgets that every Christian is blessed to be an ambassador for Christ, that we're blessed and called, blessed to, be, uh, blessed to be called to give our very lives that the gospel message might reach everyone in the world. If our starting point for trying to understand the will of God is my faithfulness or my obedience, I'm going to struggle, whether it's my own struggles or someone else's, my own tragedy or someone else's tragedy. My starting point always needs to be, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And if you start there, you're never disappointed, right? Lord says, well, I'm going to take that job from you. Okay, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I'm going to take that loved one from you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Right? I hit that a little close, didn't I? But it's the truth. I don't always understand why God does what he does. I was talking to somebody yesterday and I was explaining to them, I think we'll be pleasantly surprised when we get to heaven and, and God lets all the threads of the things that happen to our lives and the things that happen to those we love and care about and, and we get to see all the threads of the impact of what he allowed to happen. I think we'll be pleasantly surprised and we'll go, you knew all that. I didn't. That's why it was hard for me. You knew all that was going on, all that you were working. 
Lord, you're good. And so, because Paul doesn't want them to become discouraged, because, well, Paul, you're in jail. That's not how this is supposed to work out. I mean, you're faithful. You're, you're, you're obedient to God. I mean, we love you. You, you, you ministered so much to us. Most of us are, are, are where we are today because of your ministry. He doesn't want them to become discouraged. And so, instead of sharing this prayer, he'll get to that eventually, Paul interrupts that plan to explain his unique calling, his unique job assignment in the family of God, the good works that God had planned for him to do so that they won't lose heart. And so as we learn about Paul's unique blessing, this blessing that God gave him to be in this role in the body of Christ, as we learn about that, it's important for us to understand that God has a unique calling for us too. And so while our unique calling may not be described in these verses, the principles that Paul lays down about his calling are important for us to understand, lest we be tempted to faint along the path of good works that God has planned for our individual lives. And so, verse 2, we get now to the subject of the interruption. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus for you Gentiles. And then he goes, if you have heard. He assumes that they have heard of his unique calling since he's been ministering to them for years and years. You know, but, but maybe you haven't. Or maybe you need to hear it again. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, word. A dispensation, it means a stewardship, a plan that God has entrusted to someone. God gave Paul the responsibility in the church to faithfully explain God's grace. That's what he says. You have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me. The word grace there, of course, is God's unmerited favor, all the blessings we've been studying. God gave Paul the responsibility to understand all of those blessings, but not just so he could hold on to them, but given me, he says, to you word. The word to there, it means to extend into an area. That's why the old King James translates the word you, you word, because there's no other way to kind of explain it, that it's it's an extension. There's motion involved here. God entrusted Paul to take the grace of God and not just to be blessed by it, but to extend it into new areas, in this case, of course, the Ephesians. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't that a description of every Christian's job, to tell someone else about God's grace? Well, yes. But the very first Christians didn't understand the full significance of God's grace yet. God needed to give someone special revelation to teach us about this grace, and God chose Paul. Look at verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Paul did not come to his conclusions about grace and about the church just by studying the Old Testament. As one of the apostles who laid down the foundation of God's Word in the church, Jesus taught this truth to him directly. Paul repeats over and over and over again, I didn't learn this from James, I didn't learn it from John, I didn't learn it from Peter, I didn't learn it from this rabbi. He says, I learned it straight from Jesus. Divine revelation from God. How that by revelation, he, the Lord, made known unto me, Paul, the mystery. Now, a mystery of in our minds, usually is something unsolved, right? Oh, it's a mystery. What is it? Sometimes you might go out to eat and it might be a mystery. I don't know what's in this thing. Might be a good mystery, might be a bad mystery. 
But here, the word doesn't mean something unknown. It means something that used to be unknown, but has now been revealed. So Paul is explaining that God gave me special revelation to do my job, something that hadn't been known before, but has now been made known through me, which he says, as I wrote afore in few words. In other words, what did God reveal to me? Everything I taught to you in chapter 2, all my words about the church at the end of chapter 2 here. And so while God did call many to explain His amazing grace for the first time, God gave Paul the task of explaining the mystery of the grace of God in creating the church, in creating this entity where Jews and Gentiles both have equal access to the Father. That's something that the early Christians didn't get, right? Jesus said, listen, wait here for the promise of the Father until you be endued with power from on high, and then what? Go, right? Start here in Jerusalem, then go out to Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. The only part they heard was stay in Jerusalem. And that's what they did. And so God allowed persecution to scatter him. God had to give a vision to Peter. This was something that God uniquely revealed to Paul. Now, we can find all sorts of foreshadowing about the church in the Old Testament, but no one back then expected God to create this new group. And so Paul hopes that by explaining his very specific but important part in the family of God to receive this new revelation, he hopes that will help them to receive his letter well. For in verse 4, he continues that thought, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby, by reading his words, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. His goal in sharing his special calling is so that they would be empowered when they heard this letter read to them to to receive it, to reflect well upon it, to really let it chew on it and think about it. Paul isn't bragging about receiving revelation directly from God. He's just stating this, this was my job. This was my appointed assignment from God in the family of God. Now, Receiving divine revelation is not your assignment in the family of God. That's not your job. And if you're looking for new revelation from God, please stop. That's how cults get started. But while Paul's job isn't your job, you do have an assignment in the family of God. Every one of you do. If you're a born-again believer today, you have an assignment in the family of God. Do you know what it is? Do you know how God wants you to live it out? I hope I have the gift of teaching. I think I do. You keep coming back, so. (laughs) But my gift of teaching, maybe God wants to use it differently than someone else's. Many of you here have the gift of teaching. Maybe God uses it in one-on-one conversations. Maybe he uses it in a small group environment. Maybe he uses it with, with kids instead of me sharing with adults. Maybe he uses it as you're out and about more than rather than a, in a fixed environment like this where we all come together. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, earlier than our scripture reading, it says, hey, listen, there are the same gifts that many people have, but they function differently. There are many different offices, but everyone may have, you might have the same gift and yet not the same office. So do you know what your assignment is in the family of God? And do you know how God wants you to live it out? Listen, if you don't know the answer to those questions, just ask the Lord. And then I would recommend this. 
As you're asking the Lord, read through the passages in Scripture that list the gifts that God gives to us. And as you read each one, ask God for it. Ask God for it. What's the worst He can say? No. Right? But here's what you might find out. I have found that when I recommend Christians to do that, they often begin to hear the voice of God or, or maybe like a tugging on their heart for certain gifts. I remember when I was first challenged to do this as a Bible college student, and I thought, well, okay, I went back to my room, and I read through Romans 12. I read through 1 Corinthians 12. I read through, there's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, 4, no, 4. This lists some gifts there. I went through all the lists, and I prayed for each one. And some of them, God said no. And I was surprised by a few of them that the Lord started tugging on my heart. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that. God's not going to hide it from you. Now, if you do know what your assignment is in the family of God, are you okay with the assignment God's given you? Or do you chafe at it? Are you jealous of the role that others have? Or are you delighting in pleasing your Father's heart and blessing your family members? It might sound amazing to get divine revelation from Jesus. It might sound amazing to have the larger-than-life calling calling. I did that first service too, Pauling. <clears throat> I guess it's Pauling. It might sound amazing to have the larger than life calling Paul had to share those revelations with a large portion of the world. But don't forget, it comes with a manacle that's attached to a Roman soldier. Remember, it comes with multiple beatings and running for your life. I, I frequently had people come to me and say, hey, Pastor Wells, my first Sunday here. I'm, I'm so glad I'm here. God's called me to be your apostle. <laughs> and I'm like, sweet, I can send all the yucky emails to you. <laughs> That's not what they're interested in. They have self-ambition and look for Glory. The truth is, every assignment from God, whether you're Paul or me or you, every assignment from God has its challenges and its blessings. And as we faithfully and joyfully serve, we can find the blessings in the midst of the challenges. We read in our scripture reading this morning about how every, every part has its part, right? The body has many parts, and every part has its part to play, right? And it mentions there, I'll read it to you, because it's kind of ironic how, I say ironic, but I shouldn't say it, it's kind of inspired, how God knew some of the things that were going to happen in our day. He says, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, does that make it not of the body? Sound familiar? Well, I know I'm a boy, but I feel like a girl. Okay, well, you could say that, but it doesn't change the fact you're a boy. Now, I know I'm picking on one obvious thing there, but we can extend this to lots of areas. I know I made vows and I'm married, but I don't want to be married. I don't feel married anymore. I don't feel in love anymore. I know God's called me to love my kids, but I, I want to pursue this career. I have this opportunity that's unique, and yeah, it may be detrimental to them, but this will be good for me, and I need, to, I need to take this shot because it's not going to come again. This is what I feel I need to do. 
I need to do what's right for me. It doesn't change the fact you're a parent and that you're called to minister to those kids and put them before yourself. It doesn't change the fact that you're married and you, you made a vow and you need to honor it. I can keep going. <laughs> we see these things even in the world right now on a national scale. The Bible says that God set the bounds of the nations, right? Huh? We have an individual or a group of individuals in a government who are saying, well, we don't like the bounds God gave to us. We're going to go take more. We're going to go take more. I know you call me to be a foot God, but I want to be a head. And what happens when someone does that, whether it's on a international scale or it's on a, an individual scale. Well, you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 12 when we get later on and it says, you know, the eye can't say to the, I think it's the foot, you know, I have no need of you. See, what happens when, when we start doing this is, is we begin to say, well, I'm not going to do my job and you'll suffer because of that, but I don't care. I wonder... I wonder how much our world is missing out on by all these boys who think they're girls and girls who think they're boys. The people who don't want to honor their marriage vows and don't want to pour into their families, don't want to stay in their work environment and be the light that God's called them to be, don't want to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ because they just don't want to be a prisoner. Our culture right now, it just takes a group and it says everyone who's even remotely associated with that group is all the same. Listen, there are wicked people in the Ukraine army and there are wicked people in the Russian army. But you can better believe that there's Christians who are caught up in this mess too. And what's going to result from a nation who's not, not happy with their bounds and they're going to step over and go to war we're going to have kids that don't have moms and dads anymore. Husbands that don't have wives. Wives that don't have husbands anymore. Moms and dads that don't have kids anymore. Everybody loses. Everybody loses. When I decide, God, I don't like what you made me. I don't like the unique challenges that come with what you made me. And so I'm going to go do something else. Everyone loses. Now, if you come to me and you say, Pastor Will, but the role God gave me is hard. If you come to me and you say, Pastor Will, I, I, I know I'm a boy, but I don't feel like a man. I feel like a woman. Okay. That's, that's life. We all go through things that we don't feel like being or doing what we're called to do. That's normal. That's okay to feel that way. But it's what you do with it that matters. It's easy for us to make these comments and belittle people who have a struggle like that. But I would hope that we would look at that individual and put our arms around him and go, listen, I don't have that struggle, but clearly you do, but I want you to know that God can get you through this. I hope that someone talked to whoever's calling the shots in Russia and pulled them aside and said, listen, I know that you're worried about this, this, or the other thing, or you want this and this, but God's called you to this. Be content with what God gave you and be faithful with it. He'll help you. I hope someone did. I hope someone had the courage to. 
I hope that what was done was flying in the face of that counsel rather than the absence of it. Because we're not helping anyone when we just say, oh, that's what you feel or what you want, great. Go blow up a bunch of buildings and kill a bunch of people and start a war. Go ahead and be this thing that you feel you are rather than being what God called you to be. It, won't, it doesn't matter how many people it hurts. It doesn't matter how much you miss out on God's plan for your life. You go be you. As we faithfully and joyfully serve in the role that God gives to us, whatever that may be, we can find the blessings in the midst of the challenges. Now, when we get to verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to kind of move now on this mystery of Christ. He mentioned that you might understand my knowledge, my revelation in the mystery of Christ. He's going to explain this mystery of Christ, and in particular, the mystery of the church to us, verses 5 and 6, which, mystery of Christ, in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Part of that mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Paul, when he says the mystery of Christ, he's thinking about all the revelations about Jesus. And he explains that we're not revealed in the Old Testament, which in other ages, in the Old Testament, the word there, ages, means past generations. In these past generations, it was not made known unto the sons of men. Listen, there were many revelations about the Messiah in the Old Testament, but... There are certain revelations about Jesus that were reserved for those who laid the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament. And that's what he explains here. It wasn't known to the Old Testament prophets. It wasn't known unto those who, who lived back then, the sons of men. While in other ages it was, it was not made known, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, there are two ways you can read that. You can read that and say, they didn't know that in the Old Testament, but now it has been revealed to our most holy, reverend, high-standing, holy apostles and prophets. You could read it that way. It's not what it means. Or you can read it the way it's intended. The word holy means to be set apart or consecrated for a specific, special task. These guys weren't chosen for this because they're better than everybody else and should be bowed down to, the ring kissed, and all that kind of stuff. These guys were set apart for this specific task. And they did so by the Holy Spirit. We read that elsewhere in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, when Peter is explaining how inspiration works, how we got the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 19 through 21, Peter has just been explaining. He goes, man, he goes, we were eyewitnesses. We were there in the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the Father speak from the cloud. We saw Jesus glorified. I mean, we saw all these things. And look at what he says in verse 19. As awesome as that is, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, something better, something better than that. A more sure word of prophecy, the Scriptures, Whereunto you do well that you take heed. Listen to the Scriptures. As unto a light that shines in a dark place. How long do we have to listen to the Scriptures? Until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Until Jesus comes back. That's our more sure thing. Our more solid thing. That's what we need to take heed to. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. The old King James says. But it means origin. None of the scriptures that we wrote was because Paul sat down and he goes, oh, I got an idea. I've kind of put things together and this is how it is. 
It didn't come from him. Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time, actually says any time, never came by the will of man. How did it come? Well, holy men, set apart men, men who were consecrated for this special task, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. That's how we got the Bible. Regular people, okay, John, Peter, Paul, they didn't glow. They're regular people like you and me. But God set them apart to this specific task. This is just more evidence that the foundation of the church is not people, it is the Scriptures. It's not this select group of people. The Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers, they were set apart for this specific task. And since they finished their job, because we have the completed Scripture, there is no more office of apostle and prophet. It doesn't exist in the church anymore because the Word of God is complete. We take what they gave us and we build on top of it. You don't keep building a foundation after it's done. You build on top of it. Now, the New Testament is what Paul has in particularly in mind here. And one of the important mysteries that was revealed in the New Testament was the mystery of the church, what Paul taught us at the end of chapter 2, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers, three things, of his promise in Christ by the gospel. In Greek, it's more clear. The phrase fellow heirs means co-heirs, of the same body means co-members in a group, and then partakers means co-sharers. So there's like some alliteration going on here when Paul's writing. He says we are co-heirs, co-members, and co-sharers of the promise, of his promise in Christ that came to us by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Now, we're a motley crew here. Seriously, I mean, you would never find this group anywhere else together because the pieces don't fit, right? Like we're all, well, there, there are so many different ethnicities represented here, financial status, social status, experience in life. Like we are a very diverse group of people here, all right? Ethnically, uh, culturally, background, where we grew up, all those things with very vast here, very big differences here. And the world would tell you, we're different. We're supposed to be enemies. You're in this class and you're in this class and you've wronged each other. Therefore, you should hate each other. But Paul says that when we get saved, Jesus makes us partners and co-members who equally share in all God has for us. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) No other group can give that. None. Oh, they can promise it. They can even have the same tenets. We are all equal and we will all possess things equally. Yeah, and when has it ever turned out that way? Because who's going to enforce and make sure everyone has the same stuff? People with enough stuff, more stuff than everybody else to make sure everybody has the same stuff. Now you say, oh, Pastor Will, the church doesn't always live up to that. I know that. It's made up of sinners. The church may fail to act like what we are, but that doesn't change what we are. And so because of that, we don't, our goal is not to strive to create unity in the church. That's not our job. We are unified. To quote Rich Chafin, one of the speakers at our pastor's conference, he said this, we are unified. Our unity, which exists already, 
however, can be threatened. Our unity is threatened by my flesh, my pride, my comfort, my self-will, and my self-deception. And so what our job is to deny ourselves, <laughs> take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Our job is to maintain the unity we already have, not to make or create unity. You don't have to do that. Jesus already did that. Our job is to work at keeping the peace. And that's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, and be at peace among yourselves. Really simple. Are you striving to be at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you sowing discord? Well, this idea that the Gentiles would be saved was no mystery. That was in the Old Testament. But the creation of the church was. And it was Paul's unique assignment from God to reveal this truth to the church. Look at verse 7. Whereof this new entity of co-heirs, co-members, and co-sharers in the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. I did a wedding this weekend, and you know, frequently people who don't know me will say, oh, are you the minister? And usually it's, it's thought of in our culture as like an efficient, like a title you know, for an efficient, someone of importance, and to which I very quickly explain, I'm not very important at all. <laughs> I'm actually glad to be here and invited. But you know, I do weddings and funerals, and frequently I'm called a minister. That's not the idea of an efficient or a title. The word here, it means... In the Bible, it means a servant, but not just someone who has the position of servant, but a servant who is seen in his activity. In other words, it's not someone who labors in a private endeavor, his own will. It's one who executes the commands of another. God issued orders to Paul, and he went out to execute them. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? How did Paul get that role? It was because he was the most qualified man for the job, right? because he had the best education, right? Because he could relate to people better than everyone else in this particular job. Is that why? He says, it's according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. How was Paul selected? It was an unearned present, a gift of the grace of God. Gift is just a present, grace, unearned favor. It was an unearned present given out of God's kindness and generosity. And in that gift, God transformed Saul of Tarsus from a rabid rabbi who persecuted the church to Paul, the man who was persecuted for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? <laughs> that didn't happen because Paul checked into a rabid rabbi rehab facility. It happened because of the effectual working of God's power. The effectual working means the functioning power of God, that His power actually works. Paul was transformed because God's power works. Aren't you glad God's power works? I am too. And that's why none of us can look at our assigned task and say, well, God, you made a mistake. I'm not the right person for the job. I can't do this. Every time you and I say that to the Lord, the Lord's like, I know. I didn't pick you because I thought you could do it. I didn't pick you because you were the most qualified. I didn't pick you because you had the right skill set. I picked you because my power works. 
and I want to use you. I want to use you. Now, that truth can be very difficult to speak to yourself when you're facing an assignment from God that seems impossible. I want you to love that child that won't love you back. I want you to serve those coworkers who hate you. I want you to share the gospel again with that person who blasts you every time you do it. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to pray for your rulers. I want you to jump into that opening for service in the church that no one's going to pat you on the back for because no one will know. Or a really difficult calling, I want you to marry Will Ramirez. Do you believe God's power works? It does. It does in you as much as Paul. That blessing is for everyone who is in Christ, even someone like Paul. Verse 8, and I'm going to wrap this up quick. It's not going to get all the way down. You're like, he's still got five verses left. (sighs) That's why they call it a miracle. It doesn't happen very often. by the effectual working of his power unto me, me of all people, who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given. Less than the least, it's a weird way to put it in the Greek. It means I'm more than the least important. (laughs) You think you're the least important? I'm more than that. You know, or you've got an idea who you think is the least important? I'm more than that. I'm more least important. Paul believed that if anyone could be unworthy of being saved, it was him. Paul also believed that if anyone could be unworthy to be used by God, it was him. So that means you and I cannot claim to be so unimportant that God has no plan for us or that he can't use you. None of us can claim that because Paul under the inspiration of God's Spirit, already says, I'm the least important. I'm the least unnecessary. I'm the least, the least necessary. It's not you. And yet, God used him. And that means that God can and plans to use you. Amen? Amen. We'll pick it up next Sunday, God willing, finish up verse 8 and try to get to verse 13 and see how we do. I don't think that this means that Paul was actually the least important. I think Paul the Apostle has done a whole lot more than I have for the Lord. But here's the reality. That's how Paul thought of himself. And so wherever you're at this morning, if the Lord's tugging on your heart and and saying, hey, come serve me, come do this. You know, I've called you to this. I, I have a place for you in the body of Christ, and I want you to do this. And you're thinking, but I can't. I'm not good enough. I, I, half time, I don't even know if I'm really saved. Well, you're not alone. The guy who gave us these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his part in the body of Christ, he felt the same way. So that means God can use you, and he wants to. He loves you. You're necessary. You're important. If, if you look at, the, at what God has called you to do and you say, well, no, I, that's not important enough or, or no, I can't do that, it's us who miss out. So will you take that challenge to embrace the 
job assignment God's given you and his family? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, you know our frame that we are simply dust. You know our weaknesses and our struggles. And so Lord, you know what's going on in every heart this morning. That there are some who even now may be wrestling and saying, but I don't, I just don't see any way or I, it seems like I fail every time I step out to do what God tells me to do or maybe even some who have just never answered the call to step into the role that you've given them in the body of Christ. Lord, we don't want any of us to leave here today unyielded to you. And so, Lord, on every heart that's struggling this morning, would you remind them that you love them? Would you remind them that you're good? Would you remind them that you're faithful? Would you make this mystery, this revelation, the truth of the body of Christ real to them? But they would see that you're not done with them, that you have a good plan for them. And if they'll just walk in it, walk in those good works that you have for them, you'll do it through them. And Lord, for every heart that's praying right even now and saying, Lord, I give it to you. I want to hear what you have for me. I want to do what you call me to do. I want to be faithful. Would you fill them with your spirit so they can? We can do nothing without you, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So strengthen every heart here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.